Welcome, dear listeners, to episode 19 of The Learning Curve. I am Kara Kandel here with my co-host, Bob Bowden, back after a brief hiatus. Uh, but you had an awesome co-host with you last week, Bob. I could tell that you really enjoyed it. And 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 not for nothing, but even though I, um, I was away the last time we recorded this podcast, we actually got some FaceTime this weekend at the International School Choice and Reform Conference in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. How are you doing, Bob? I'm doing well, and I, I sat and watched you present on the last day of the conference, and I had this revelation, Kara, I wanted to share with you quickly. Ooh, I love revelations. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah, you were, you were presenting, and I thought, wow, Kara's making a lot of really good points, full of substance, well-delivered, thoughtful, interesting, uh, you know, and, and I thought to myself— Oh, go on. I, th- <laughs> I thought to myself, you know, why, why is she sounding so great? And then it dawned on me— the reason is because I wasn't talking. Oh. And I thought, God. wow, this is like an amazing model. Like, she sounds so great as long as I stop talking. She sounds fantastic. <laughs> and then I thought, well, what of course, is, I'm not going to do that on the podcast. But together, anyway. Bob. Yeah. That was a no. That thank you very much. That's very generous of you. That was a really fun panel on messaging. But I also have to point out that you, my friend, you brought the fire. You brought the oh, fire sure, on sure. your lunchtime yeah. panel. I think that was the most fun that um, that those in the school choice school reformy crowd have had in quite in quite a long time. Some very um, provocative I, conversation. I, I, I have, you, Chris Stewart. Hutchinger Report, Education Week, uh, another independent journalist writing a, writing a book on vouchers. It was, it was fantastic. How did you feel after your fiery panel, Bob? I, I really thought it was great. I had some pride and some shame for those. Uh, I, you know, most weren't there, and it wasn't recorded. Shame? Bob, my, the pres- the premise shame. of my presentation was how to infuse media bias into school choice reporting. I said, if what you want to do— nothing biased about your presentation, right? <laughs> I said, if what you want to do is put bias into reporting on school choice, this chat is for you. Here are my tips for how to do it. I'm like, number one, if you're reporting about an inner city charter school, don't compare it to the inner city district schools. Compare it to state averages. And I showed examples of that happening in Atlanta. I'm like, tip number two, you know, have a lot more quotes from the union in a teacher strike than, you know, and and ignore like in the Chicago teacher strike where they prohibited charter growth as part of the contract, but then didn't report on that in a CNN video. Like I, I just showed, here are all the tips, and it was kind of tongue-in-cheek for here's how you put bias in. Yeah, uh, so. and, and you hit it hard. I have to say, though, I mean, I think that it really led to a pretty good conversation. And and the journalists on the panel, I think we really need to give them credit because, um, you know, there were a couple of them um, that really owned up to the idea that, that that nobody is without bias, right? I was, I don't know if you know this about me, Bob, this is a little known fact, but I actually have a master's degree in anthropology. I mean, oh. why? But I do. <laughs> um, and um, one of the things you learn when you're studying, you know, when you're doing an ethnography and learning about anthropological methods is that, like, it's absolutely impossible to see the world without bias. So I think the point that you were bringing home was like, folks, you might not think that your that your lens is something other than completely factual. But, you know, I, I think you and Chris Stewart, I have to say, did a great job of pointing out that sometimes bias is most apparent in what is left out to the good point that you Absolutely. just made. Yes, yeah. omission is certainly a huge part of it. But I, I kind of felt like many of them didn't, many of them approached it from that we were, uh, since we're advocates, we can't see the world clearly. We're 
unable to see oh, the but world there's clearly. a point there too and I, so I mean, not that we can't see the world clearly but obviously we everybody has an agenda we ought to be honest about that don't you think well, the, I was saying, <laughs> I was citing objective measures where, look look at a quote imbalance. We have a whole bunch of quotes from the union side and hardly any quotes from the other side. You can find objective measures that will quantify bias. And so it's it's not always just, I mean, yes, to some extent, everybody has is acculturated in some way and approaches the world through their experiences and et cetera. My, my, I guess the premise of my chat was that the, the a lot of the, People that think of themselves as objective journalists are either fooling themselves or intentionally Absolutely. proffering a description of themselves that is not accurate. That they and that, I have to say, I think the brave women on that panel, and again, you got to give them credit because, like, talk about jumping into. You know, they knew what they were going to get into, and they still sort of came and 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 entertained it. And I thought actually, it it did lead to a really great um, conversation and certainly an entertaining one. I well, mean, let me just add one more thing. Chris Stewart together, you know, well, let me, the one thing that I, when I said some shame, the one thing I regretted is that I actually kind of, at, at one point, like I, I was, you know, I threw a punch hard enough at my initial presentation that I didn't want to be just generally seen as truculent and obstinate and all that. So then later someone said, I don't want to get personal. Someone said that I didn't understand something about how Texas charter schools that serve special populations, uh, there are controversies about whether they truly serve the populations they claim to serve. And, and I, I let that go and didn't defend my, no words, I, I lost sleep over the fact, Kara, that I, I didn't, do, I was trying to at that point be conciliatory after I had thrown such hard punches and then I let someone say on a panel that I didn't understand something that I completely understood, but I was just trying to, at that Bob, point, this is a moment of personal growth, my friend, okay. this is a okay. moment of personal growth, I say, I'm sorry you lost sleep, but go with it, go I with it, I took a punch, no? also, but what I'm trying to say is I took a punch I could have easily blocked, and I didn't out of just, because at that, anyway, so that, that's, that's my take, but yeah, well, we I have to say, somebody sure. said to me, somebody said to me after, um, after the panel and after your lunch, they were, they were sort of one a day after one another said, I had no idea you had a podcast. I said, but you just spent the weekend here. So you saw it. You saw Bob's approach. You saw my approach. And we tend to, we meet somewhere in the middle with just a little bit of fighting in between, but anyway, it was a great time great. and did... shout out to everybody who was there. Um, what a, what a wonderful um, space to learn with with colleagues. So, okay, we have some stories. Of the, I mean, this is a big week, right? We got to say, we know we're going to preview for you. Everybody's all a Twitter, pun intended, um, with the Espinoza case that we're coming to you the day after um, Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue um, was heard by the Supreme Court of the United States. And we're going to talk about that in just a bit. But before that, Bob, stories did, of did, did, the did it from the Choice Media Newswire. Did it, did I mean, that's where we get these stories. By for those playing at home, we. I mean, nobody should forget about the Choice Media Newswire. That's where we see all these stories. You know, could you do the again? Is that? Okay, here we go. So the first one we're going to talk about comes to us. Um, it's from Chalkbeat, but um, out of Tennessee. And the headline is there are 57 private schools wanting to participate in Tennessee's new voucher program. OK, so for those of you who don't know, Tennessee now has two private school choice programs. The most recent is a new education savings account, and it is designed specifically to serve students in the 
low performing districts of um it's what is it bob it's memphis and nashville so i can't shelby and county one in knoxville. And, yes yes and so okay and so you know Here's the thing to know about this program. First of all, incredibly contentious. I mean, they usually are, but it passes the legislature and then they go ahead and up and like up the timeline for implementation. So this program has had to be implemented in very short order. And I think it looks like they're doing a pretty good job of doing that in a high quality way. But what this article is about, Bob, is the fact that there are now all of these private schools raising their hands to participate. So just to recap, by definition, this private school choice program is going to serve kids who are coming from districts that haven't been serving them well. So many of them are coming from low performing schools and are probably low performing themselves because of that, because of the opportunities that they have not had. And these kids are, you know, by definition, low income students, et cetera. And here we have private schools raising their hand to participate, at least 57 that we know of so far that this article talks about. And um, the the uh, Department of Education currently in charge of implementing this program is going to create a list of eligible private schools. Now, just one really really quick thing that I think is important to point out to this, Bob, before I throw it to you, and that is that this to me speaks to program design. Because when you have a good number of private schools raising their hands to serve these students, and we can, I can't tell from this article what the quality of these schools are, but the more you have, you got to assume that they're going to be some at least of high quality. I think it speaks to the fact that Tennessee has designed this program pretty well, like, right, putting in place the right accountability mechanisms, but also the, the mechanisms the, that are going to actually encourage private schools to raise their hands and participate and say, yeah, we want to take kids that want to come to us. So I, lo- I love this story and I'm wishing all the best to our friends in Tennessee. Bob, what do you say? Yeah. So just, well, one key thing about the program design change was from the beginning, it's about, it's a $7,000 education savings account. And at the beginning, what they said is that any private school that wants to participate must accept that as the full tuition. So, so then a lot of the schools were like, well, that's lower than we're charging right now. And I don't know. We're not so sure about it. So then they changed the law and said, all right, actually, forget that part. We're going to make more of a marketplace. We're going to allow the parents to allocate this $7,000 as they see fit. And we will not require participating schools to guarantee a ceiling of $7,000 for tuition price. And that exploded the number of schools willing to participate. And that we now have a burgeoning marketplace in Tennessee. And so that, that single program design change was key. There's so many places where over-regulation of school choice programs stifles and strangles them. And then when you loosen some of the regulations, you end up with a much more competitive landscape. Yeah. And can we just point out for a quick second here that this is, as you said, an education savings account program. So while the primary purpose is for kids to take these dollars to private schools, there are other things that parents and families can use this money for, like special like services and therapies and um, transportation, in fact, under this and tutors and online and courses, all and of this stuff. So, hey, Chalkbeat, how about not calling it a voucher program when it's an education savings account? I'm just looking uh, at the although fact. point of information. Uh, I've been using Robert rules of Robert's rules of orders more point of information is that even Ed Choice, the group Ed Choice calls this a voucher because uh, they're mad about a, a feature of this program where they say you have to enroll in some sort of brick and mortar private schools. Right. To, it to does. Be, And so it's not you can't do purely online, for example, and participate. And they don't like that aspect of the program. So they they say it is. Our friends at Ed Choice don't like stuff. 
<laughs> All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> On to our next story. We're going. We're going. We're going somewhere cold, Bob. Colder than Boston. We're going to Alaska. <laughs> and the See, headline I, love, here, I love rapping in Alaska and Hawaii because they get left out a lot of times from our, our, our stuff. And there's so no sorry. reason I mean, for it. Especially, yeah. you know, Hawaii. It's so warm and tropical and lovely. Anyway, so Education Dive, Alaska considers consolidating its 54 districts into 18. Okay, so what? So Alaska, very rural place, kind of some. I'm going to let you explain these strange rules around like what, how they decide, you know, what the district lines are and all that stuff. But here's what I see as the bottom line, right? So consolidating 54 school districts into 18. So the question is, it's an amazing ratio. If I could just jump in that 54 to 18, a lot of times like states will tinker around the edges of like, well, let's take these, you know, four districts and make them two or something. 54 to 18 is an 50, gigantic so what, what does this tell you? It tells you that this is probably needed to happen for an incredibly long time, right? And it makes me, it just makes me think so much about why is it there's this human impulse to just resist consolidation. So we're seeing that this isn't just in Alaska. We see this, you know, in a lot of places, especially with um, districts that are losing population, a lot of times in rural areas, et cetera. And I think it's this knee-jerk reaction that it's like, and in, in a lot of places, of course, we, we must say, schools are the centers of community, right? Especially in rural areas. Schools are change sort of- that when uh-huh. just the districts consolidate. It's still the same school. It's still People the same buses. take it as like you are trying to take away, do something, impact my local district school. And people get really, really upset about it. And you know what, Bob? They get upset about it until it happens. And then what you realize nine times out of 10, as this article points out, could be a really big cost savings, operational cost savings, which means more great stuff for kids. Right. So I hope that other places would look at this and see, you know, and there are ways to consolidate and ways not to consolidate. Um, Mainly, you need to involve the community in decision making. But this, you know, this is something that a lot of communities need to start looking at. But yes, from 54 to 18, what an incredible number. What do you say? So they also mentioned Illinois and South Carolina as other states looking to do consolidations. You know, there was a section of the cartel movie that I did uh, many years ago equating New Jersey's some 600 school districts to a patronage job factory. You know, we talked about in that film about how all these administrative people that don't really teach, but and not just assistant principals, but people like nurses, counselors, IT staff, you know, that it, contractors hired by districts like accountants and lawyers, and that and that you have what it, what we would say the reverse of an economy of scale, a diseconomy of ze- of shrinking scale in these in having too many school districts scattered everywhere because you can have all of these new administration jobs every time you make a tiny district even tinier, you get to bloat this administration level. Um, and then I got introduced to an education researcher, Jay Green. He just watched the film. It was a New York City screening. He wa- The one criticism of my film is he came up and he said, well, actually... Jay Green only had one criticism? Well, one he said. Yeah, he probably had 50. The one he said was, he goes, actually... There's more waste in the bigger districts where you'd think there'd be economies of scale. But in fact, there's so much opacity. There's so yeah. little transparency in the big districts that can have entire departments that do nothing for decades. And no oh, one for they, sure. Absolutely. So anyway, it's kind of this interesting thing. Where is there more waste? A big district that has where they, no one can even track how many people aren't doing work because there's such a bloated, sprawling, giant district or 
a bunch of tiny districts that have duplicated administration level jobs. Ooh, so anyway, what doctoral student at the University of Arkansas wants to do that study? Go for uh, it. There, exactly. Yeah. Right. So, so I mean, all I would say is that I, in general, I kind of think that 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 there, you know, that, that while economies of scale make sense and you can save money that way, the better way to be more efficient is have a marketplace and have competition and choice. That that's the real way to save I'm money. I'm so surprised that you bloat. think that. And that's how you I'm, really reduce I'm, bloat. Right. Uh, just having gigantic. I mean, wh why haven't have them all? Why just have just a statewide school? Just let it rip, Bob. Just let it rip. And I, I have I have friends who have argued persuasively that we should get rid of school districts. Just eliminate all of them. Just have schools and have money go to the school based on enrollment, and they get more for you know either special needs kids populations, and then maybe they get more for. You know, Title One, low income, pop, et cetera. But just have schools. Forget the district. Like, listen, as, as much as I would like to say that that's utterly off the ranch, because it would make me really happy to be able to say that to you. I think that if we consider, and, and this actually goes to our next story too, if we consider the possibilities that technology now has to offer, and if you're looking, for example, at the education savings account model, which essentially, you know, takes government funds and allows parents to do a bunch of different things with it when it works well, um, that you could be talking about a place where it, that districts do become somewhat obsolete because there's just this universe of options. So I, instead of talking about the market, Look at every I like mom to talk and pop charter. Look at every mom and pop. There you have a district functioning as one school, and essentially, yeah, just okay. if that, if that's impossible to do it, how come we have all those schools doing it today without a gigantic bloat of some extra layer far away? So it's not impossible to do it, but the question, and this gets very much to our next story. I think um, the question in my mind, Bob, is one of quality, one of controlling for quality, and I'm not saying that you know it's all, but but our current structures and systems are set up to control for and hold schools accountable basically at the district level, even when a district is only one school. But, but let's talk about this because our next story is from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Westchester wants to win back charter students with its own cyber program. So here you are, Bob, the market ripping uh, Westchester. West, West, the two word Westchester. When, when Westchester is yes. one word, it's a county in New York state. When it's, it's two words, it's uh, nice Pennsylvania. One. But anyway, yeah. go ahead. Okay. So maybe still nice, but it sounds like this is a good school district. But basically, um, trying to entice students that the district is lost back to its online learning program. So just right here from the article, it says, what are the selling points? A diploma from one of the district's well-rated high schools and access to all of its offerings, like its 1600 student orchestra program with the flexibility of a go-at-your-own-pace schooling. So sounds lovely, right? But so what's the problem here? The problem, of course, if we've been reading the news, is that cyber schools in Pennsylvania have been hit hard by, you know, like researchers are looking and saying quality is quite low. So this is why, to my mind, anything we talk about in the realm of opening up possibilities to students is how do we control for quality? Now, we can't say anything about the quality of this program in this particular article, but there is something to be said for having accountability structures in place that will hold all of these new types of programs accountable for ensuring yeah. that students are learning, that they're getting what they're promised, let, let and me, that academic outcomes are good. Let me just make something clear. The story is about school districts do, running their own online learning programs to compete with the online charter schools that are statewide in Pennsylvania. So there's a bunch of Pennsylvania statewide. They're called cyber charters there. And so these are about this is about districts like the one in this particular district called Westchester, Pennsylvania, offering its own online program 
and they are pushing it and they're promoting it and they're having uh, uh, you know people uh, come they have like you know kids playing violins or something at a school library at a middle school with a string quartet you know where they invited these you know culinary students uh, having having a table with like edible cookie dough and other treats and they're doing this to promote hey if you do online learning here in your local district you also get access to these other things like music groups and stuff like that and so they're they're trying to compete essentially with, the, with for what Bob can we just clarify they're competing for what they're competing for kids to sign up to their kids online education. Represent what? What? Enrollment dollars represent. I feel well, yeah. like just to this constant critique that charters, especially online charters, are these for-profit monsters. That are, this is this is exactly the same thing that the district is trying to do, right? right. We're competing for students that represent dollars, and I, I'm yes. just wondering where that critique is from. So, and just so quickly, I'm I'm blurred. My mind is blurred, Kara. Kara, with a dizzying array of contradictions and layers with a story like this. First, as you cited, online works great for some kids, not great for others. Just like, by the way, pretty much every other educational model, right? No excuses works great for some kids, not for others. I don't know. Spanish, English, dual language models work great for some kids, not great for others. All kinds of models work great for some kids, but not great for others. But when pure online charters are running, like when it's a charter entity running these online programs, the establishment will often attack the concept citing what you talked about, overall lower test results than traditional public schools. Because a lot of kids actually don't do well in online pro. They're not motivated to to log in every day and do anything. And they're Dude, I'm not motivated to log in every day. Yeah, <laughs> but then other kids other kids are, you know, to training for the Olympics and they're and they, and they or, or they're in the hospital and they need online uh, education and learning. Or they've been bullied to the point where they want to not go to school because they're traumatized and they need a way to learn. And so there are kids that do benefit immensely from these kinds of online programs, all right? And so the same establishmentarians, in other words, that will that will criticize and disparage the charter-run online education as being, look at these poor test results. Some of them then say, oh, and by the way, here's our version of the online that is in many ways the same thing because they want to be able to say disparage it but at the same time take a piece of that pie if they can bob i think we just got through three stories where we pretty much agreed we're gonna we're gonna have to do better next week okay but we've got a really interesting um guest coming up very timely do you want to do you want to tell us who we're going to be talking to uh, if I had a sound effect for a horn fanfare right now i would play it you know like as if like a king was walking into, yeah, maybe in post they'll. <laughs> we'll get the we'll get the Jamie and Michaela to put it. Uh, uh, yeah, it's like I'm a kid, like a 17th century royalty was walking in the room, and you had these people with the like the long bugles or something doing a fanfare. That's because the great Dick Comer of the Institute for Justice, who. Gee, he's had a busy week. I guess maybe the U.S. Supreme Court is one of the things he did this week, arguing the Espinoza case and the question about whether uh, religious education can be discriminated against in state funding decisions. Uh, Dick Comer, who uh, was at the U.S. Supreme Court for oral arguments this week in the Espinoza case, will be our guest coming up. So we are so excited and fortunate 
to have with us today uh, Dick Comer, who serves as a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. And uh, we've all been talking about Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue. And this is the guy, folks. So Dick litigates school choice cases in both federal and state courts. He is IJ's resident expert on state Blaine amendments. I think uh, my colleague Jamie Gass said you've probably forgotten more about Blaine uh, than most people ever knew. Um, Prior to his work at the Institute, Dick worked as a career civil rights lawyer for the federal government, working at the Departments of Education and Justice, as well as the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Um, And he received his law degree from the University of Virginia in do I, you want me to say the year? Of course. You're a young man. Of 1978. Course. And his Why would you say the year? Why does that help? Okay, go ahead. Hey, I came out of retirement for this case. This is amazing. <laughs> so, well, we are so excited to hear about what it is that brought you out of retirement. Um, so, Dick, could you please tell us, yesterday was the big day. Maybe for our listeners um, who need just a a pithy summary, because I think a lot of them are following this case, but some haven't. My mom has not. Um, What is it that that you were arguing in front of the Supreme Court of the United States yesterday? So Montana, after a 15-year campaign, maybe even longer, finally passed a school choice program. Uh, And it's a tax credit generated scholarship program where taxpayers in Montana can get a $150 tax credit if they donate to a scholarship organization that in turn packages those donations into a scholarship and awards them to students. And any the, the scholarship organization has to award it to any participating school in the state of Montana. And that means they can be a religious school or a non-religious school. They just have to be a private school because the idea is to give people more choices than just going to the local public school that they're assigned to and required to attend. And uh, as a, a result of a state Blaine Amendment that... Uh, is found, similar Blaine Amendments are found in in many state constitutions, about 37 of them. And the the state Department of Education, uh, Department of Revenue said, well, we won't allow the, the scholarship organization to award scholarships to families that are sending their kids to private schools. And that's the issue that this case has involved since we filed it uh, in the very beginning of, I think, 2015. Um, Dick, I'm not surprised you framed it that way. Scholarships to families that send their kids to religious schools rather than scholarships to religious schools. Exactly. And that is the thing that has been so frustrating for 25 years of litigating school choice cases. We view these scholarship programs as aid to the families because they're the ones that get to choose the school. You have a constitutional right to use private schools, but like so many constitutional rights, if you can't afford to exercise your right, for you it's basically meaningless. And school choice programs empower the families. But from the other side's perspective, because they've got to use these Blaine amendments, which are framed in terms of prohibiting 
aid to private schools or especially aid to religious schools, um, they have to frame the issue as this is aid to schools. And so every article you read, usually in the first sentence, you can tell kind of which view of this case mm -hmm. the journalist is buying. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, most of our listeners probably know, but uh, Senator Blaine was from Maine and he wanted a U.S. constitutional amendment in this regard, failed in those efforts, but then a bunch of states, he, pretty much he was afraid of Catholicism taking over America, right? Well, Isn't that kind well, of his motivation? His, actually, his motivation was more political. So he was wanted the Republican nomination to succeed U.S. Grant as president. And Grant's administration, of course, had been dogged by all sorts of allegations of corruption, including allegations against James G. Blaine himself. But uh, uh, he wanted an, an issue that he could get the Republican nomination on in 1876. And as you know, at that point, the Republicans had been dominating since the election of 1860, but they were afraid they could lose the White House if um, uh, the Democrats could put together a, a good campaign. So uh, at that time, the Republicans uh, had a very nativist element within the party that was hostile to uh, Catholics because, of course, at that time, Catholics were a, a part of the Democratic coalition, uh, particularly in the northern states where they were a big part of the electorate. And so... Uh, from the Republican view, the Democrats were the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Hey, hey. <laughs> so it was the oh. trifecta. You know, the Democrats had been, were the Southern, you know, the Southern states were part of the Democratic coalition. The Catholics were part of it. And uh, 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 the Democrats opposed prohibition and, and, the uh, uh, Republicans had all the temperance elements. So, yeah. but but the bottom line is is that it's in, in a whole bunch of states. And I'm sure you know the number of the states. There were these state constitutional amendments passed called Blaine Amendments, named after this James Blaine, and they prohibited taxpayer money going to what they called sectarian schools, which was code language for Catholic schools. Yeah. That's absolutely right. There's 37 of them. Some of them, of course, you know, Blaine didn't, the, the language that Blaine used didn't come out of nowhere. There were a bunch of states that had already passed anti-Catholic proto-Blaine amendments. The earliest comes in 1835 in uh, the state of Michigan, but not that far after, right in the middle of the know-nothing takeover of the Massachusetts government, in 1854, Massachusetts uh, adopts a Blaine Amendment and uh, several other states as well. And the federal one comes along and would have, would have required uh, all states 
to pro, you know, not fund sectarian schools. Sure. Fantastic. Kara, well, it's Kara, a proud Michigander who now lives in Massachusetts. I feel very, very connected to this. Um, Dick, so you have been arguing in in many different courts, school choice cases for, for a long time and thinking about Blaine amendments. As we said at the outset, you've probably forgotten more than most people ever knew. Why this case? Why now? And what's what are the what's the thrust of your argument? What's what did you present? Well, we presented sort of an array of arguments. Um, our broadest argument is that uh, the history of the Blaine Amendment, and specifically the history of the Montana Blaine Amendment, um, was uh, shows that the adoption of it was based on anti-Catholic animus. So they adopted it in 1889. But as a very good amicus brief filed by Senator Daines, one of the two senators from Montana, showed uh, it w- went far beyond what the federal uh, uh, Congress required of a state to become a state. It's called enabling legislation, and uh, it's controlled by the uh interior committees of the house and senate and the interior committee of the house was uh of the uh, excuse me of the senate uh was under the control of a guy named henry blair from new hampshire and uh, new hampshire had adopted their blaine amendment in 1876 right after the federal blaine amendment failed but what's important to understand is the to amend the, the U.S. Constitution, you have to get supermajorities in both houses. And they got supermajorities in both houses. It's just the supermajority in the Senate fell four votes short. So the federal one failed, but you still had a majority in both the House and Senate for requiring states that were coming in to put these sort of amendments in their Constitution. And Montana did in order to become a state in 1889. And lo and behold, they go way beyond what they had to do. And they prohibit any uh, state aid from any government entity uh, to a school controlled by a religious denomination, a sectarian school. But this is occurring at a time when... The public schools are not the secular institutions we know today. They are, in fact, as Massachusetts public schools were in 1855 when Massachusetts adopted the Blaine. The schools in Montana were generically Protestant public schools because the U.S. Constitution, the Establishment Clause, wasn't applied against the states until 1947. And so for a long time, states could in fact discriminate uh, in setting up uh, their education systems. And in fact, they did. You know, the Horace Mann, the father of the public school system in Massachusetts that served as the model for the rest of the country was... Uh, 
opening, I mean, uh, part of the, the public school movement in Massachusetts at a time where the private schools were all religious. They were all denominational. And they wanted to create public schools that would be generically Protestant. But he was adamant they were supposed to be religious schools, and they were. And the, the critical element of the uh, uh, situation that caused the Catholics to set up their own public school, I mean, parochial schools, was that the public schools were Catholic, I mean, were Protestant, and they were requiring the Catholic school kids to engage in religious exercises that were contrary to the Catholic faith. The, the public schools were looked at by the Protestants as a way of Protestantizing the Catholics, and the Catholics knew what was going on. And so they said, well, the public schools are religious, the pro our, our schools are religious, we all agree that elementary and secondary education should be religious. It's just um, which religion? Uh, whose religion? religion? Not yours. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, so Dick, let me. If we go up to the to the twenty first century, obviously we have Pell grants that can be used at religious colleges, absolutely. Like Notre Dame and Seton Hall and Loyola, and Yeshiva have, uh, and Brigham sure. Young University and sure. Southern Methodist, and we have. Medicare and Medicaid uh, reimbursements that can be used at religious hospitals uh, that are privately run and religious in America. Um, did did those examples come up in the in the in the oral arguments? Did did people did, did that come up? Uh, no, it didn't. Uh, okay. It was uh, on the list of things that I wanted to say in the rebuttal, in particular because what did come up is a a view from Justice Sotomayor that it appeared that possibly Justice Breyer was interested in, which was that this would be some sort of radical uh, change to how public education is operated if our position was adopted. That if you have a school choice program, you have to include religious as well as secular private schools. And they said, oh, God, this would be, you know, a huge change. Nonsense. Because just <laughs> as you've pointed out, all of these huge federal scholarship programs are, in fact, administered on a religiously neutral basis. And let me just all... ask you, the, let me ask you to jump in. I'm sorry to interrupt, but sure. what, what about a crazy religion? What about some sort of satanic, weird, cult kind of religion that an ordinary American oh, would look at? It's very judgy. Uh, okay. <laughs> and that's exactly the problem. Okay. It's very judgy. Who's okay. supposed to decide what is uh, orthodox and unorthodox in religion? The Supreme so Court specifically addressed that in a case called West Virginia versus Barnett. And it said that no official, high or petty, can prescribe what is orthodox in matters of opinion like politics, religion, and nationalism. 
That's right. the Supreme Court saying it. So does that not, though, elicit some concern from you that the, you know, Scientologists or something or even, I don't know, well, you can Bob imagine. Start his own religion. And then... Right. Uh, the bop out in <laughs> the Church of Bob or something that can't. I'll join. A scenario. Well, Be I'm careful, just, can, Dick. Can, 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 can you imagine a scenario of someone so twisted and strange that an ordinary person would be like, well, this isn't even a real religion. This is some sort of scam that's being run here. And that that entity would then receive either taxpayer money or tax deductible private contributions, et cetera. You know, it, if the decision maker is the family, um, then you go to, you've got to look, go all the way back to Pierce versus Society of Sisters, where the court held as a matter of constitutional law that parents have the right to direct the education of their children. And they recognized that the state had a legitimate interest in making sure that the secular, the education provided in the religious schools met the secular interest of the state. Yes, but that is the answer. Yes. All of these schools, in fact, Montana, you know, states vary dramatically on how much they regulate private education private schools mm -hmm. and they all Mon have some regulation they all have some and it it's not oriented towards religion it's oriented towards things like curriculum and fire and safety and teacher certification montana is well on the we regulate private schools a lot end of the spectrum because the public unions public teachers unions are very powerful in montana um, it's the only state where the NEA local and the AFT local, state locals, have merged. And so it's a joint MEA-AFT union, which is, I mean, we, we usually, when we're defending school choice programs, we have two lawsuits going on. One's filed by the AFT affiliate. And another's filed by the NEA affiliate. Yeah. And, um, and but, I would say that we, you've probably seen moves by both to sort of try and anticipate, um, you know, what would happen in the wake of a decision that says uh, Blaine amendments won't stand. I, I, I would be so remiss because, you know, we don't have too much time, Dick, if I didn't ask you, because I think that everybody... Uh, wants to know. Um, you you mentioned uh, you know the type of question you got from Justice Sotomayor. Um, what's your read? Did uh, people are speculating? Oh, the swing vote will be the Chief Justice, and do do you get a read um, from the justices when you are in fact arguing a case from the from the questions that they ask, or or is it still even for you? Um, well, well wait. yes, you definitely do get a read in the sense of. Some of them, uh, some of the questions that you get clearly show that they're getting your side of the argument versus the other side. So Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Alito just slammed the other side based upon the anti-Catholic origins of the Blaine Amendments. Um, and we're pretty sure from a question that Gorsuch asked that he's also in our camp. And Justice Thomas, in a, 
a case way back in 2000, wrote a plurality opinion joined by three other justices that just lambasted the, the uh, Blaine amendments. So we think we have four pretty solid votes. And it was clear from the questions I was getting from Justice um, Ginsburg, Kavanaugh, uh, Kagan, and uh, Sotomayor, they, all of their questions to me were from the other side's perspective. Pryor's questions, because they were kind of peculiar, hmm. um, it's a little harder to tell um, whether he might be gettable. Um, and Justice Roberts, the reason people are saying he's kind of the swing vote, assuming that Breyer goes with the other side, and because he dissented so vigorously in the case of Zellman, uh, which dealt with this under the Federal Establishment Clause, most of us put him in the other camp. That means the chief is the swing, and he his questions kind of went both ways. So we're cautiously optimistic because we view this case as a follow-on to a case two years ago called Trinity Lutheran, where he actually wrote an opinion for six members of the court, so he got Kagan's vote, that said it was unconstitutional for Missouri's Blaine Amendment to prohibit giving a direct grant of money to a church to resurface its preschool playground. That's what Trinity Lutheran was about, and no. Missouri wouldn't give that church $50,000 for the playground resurfacing because it was a church. That's status discrimination. Well, Every one of these Blaine amendments is framed in terms of status discrimination because none of them are framed in terms of you can't give money to religious education because they were, they were created at a time when the public schools provided a religious education. Remember, that wasn't eliminated from the public schools until the 1960s. It would seem to me that that Roberts uh, in Trinity Lutheran would have to mean he's with you guys on the Espinoza case. Uh, he'd have to be a contortionist of some kind <laughs> to have been to have been for the Trinity Lutheran and against you know if he flips well, on us on Espinoza. That would just be bizarre to me. Well, am I wrong? I, I think it would be sort of bizarre, except at a critical point in the Trinity Lutheran. Um, uh, opinion, he drops a footnote saying that we're not deciding here about any religious use the money might be put to. We're only talking about religious status. Um, and when you have institutional aid cases that go uh, directly to a religious institution, the Supreme Court has said, in fact, it's that case I talked about, Mitchell versus Helms, they do make a distinction between religious use and religious, non-religious use, basically. And, and so giving tire scrap, I mean, money to buy, use tire scraps to resurface your playground, that's a non-religious use in Mitchell versus Helms terms. And sure. giving, you know, giving them 
$100,000 to build uh, uh, a school, that would not be a non-religious use. But that is only supposed to apply in institutional aid cases like uh, Mitchell versus Helms and not in student aid cases like a scholarship program because it's understood. Yeah. Dick Comer, who argued before the U.S. Supreme Court this week, uh, my last question for you is just the the optics and there's the experience of before the U.S. Supreme Court, kind of a what's it like question. I mean, did you, uh, were you nervous? Do you have, uh, I guess, a whole bunch of, I don't know, phalanx of camera crews out flashing like paparazzi style when you're done with it? did, did you have the, a feeling of, you know, maybe I should be, I should speak loud and wave my arms? That's what I'd do, Dick, if I were before the <laughs> Supreme Court. What, what, tell us the experience of it. Um, I got to tell you, I mean, it is not like any other court you're ever in. Um, it's a, a very scary and intimidating experience, but you control that because you've spent so much time preparing. I mean, there's a sense in which we've been preparing for this case for 25 years at the Institute for Justice. We've mm-hmm. been going after Blaine amendments, hammer and tong, for over two decades. Um, so we kind of know the arguments and we can anticipate the questions. But when you're in there, it is not an environment for waving your arms. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. And such and the good work, the good work that you've done over all these years, even with a favorable um, decision or in our view, I should say, favorable decision from the court. Still, I would imagine just a lot of work to be done at the state level, whereas states and other special interest groups might find other reasons to prevent um, some of these tax credit scholarship programs, education scholarship accounts and voucher programs from from um, prevent them from being passed. So we hope that's not the case. And we assume that you at IJ will still have a lot of great work to do. (laughs) Well, uh, the important thing, I think, for everybody to understand is these Blaine amendments are a legal impediment to school choice, but they don't remove the political impediment to school choice. So, for example, this decision, if it's written broadly, would have an effect on the Massachusetts Massachusetts Blaine Amendment. Um, but what is the chance of the Massachusetts legislature, if they could pass a school choice bill, of doing so? You know, unfortunately, I've, very slim. As I say, as I said, about four miles from the seat. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. So. But right now, there's no point in Massachusetts in pushing for school choice because the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has interpreted your Blaine Amendment so broadly that it's it you it they it's a legal barrier, let alone a policy barrier. Same thing in a place like um, California, which which has bad Blaine law. But what about New York? New York already interprets its blame, in our view, appropriately and distinguishes between any 
uh, between student assistance programs and between institutional assistance programs, and they would allow a student assistance program. But it's the legal impediment. You have to have the political will to pass a program. Yeah. So still an amazing amount of work to be done. Um, but we thank you so much, not not just for being with us here today, and we're very excited about that, but, but for your work, for your ongoing work, and for coming out of retirement for this fascinating case. We will all be watching. And, um, and ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. This was Dick Comer, senior attorney at the Institute for Justice, and maybe um, sometime in the spring, we can have you on again once we find out, I guess, late spring, early summer, right? Once we find well, out what happens. Possibly so, but my retirement resumes tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope you are going somewhere nice and sunny. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I'm going to sleep for a month. Uh, <laughs> it's not well earned i'm sure <laughs> thank you thank you for Thanks having so me much. Thanks for being with us we really appreciate it take care sure. bye-bye Welcome back, gentle listeners. This is Bob Bowden and Kara Kandel. This is The Learning Curve. Our thanks to Dick Comer. And speaking about Espinoza, I wanted to cite for the commentary of the week something uh, written by Dale Chu from the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Institute. His commentary is titled, Espinoza and the Myth of Values-Neutral Schooling. All you need to do to get my interest is put together the phrase, Myth of Values-Neutral Schooling, and I'm in. So what, is, what does Dale do? Well, he gives us a quote first from the AFT union, which says the Espinoza case is, quote, a dangerous attempt to mandate taxpayer support for religious schools where students may learn intolerance of other religions, be indoctrinated against sexual preferences and gender identities, and be encouraged to reject science in favor of creationism, unquote. That's the AFT talking. And then Dale writes this. Implicit in this line of reasoning is that public schools are unbiased and values neutral. This guileless naivete belies the truth of the matter, which is that schools are, in the words of my colleague Robert Pondicio, culture-forming machines, and anything but ideologically impartial. Failure to acknowledge the simple reality prevents us from understanding and being transparent about the explicit and implicit values that drive every school, public and private, unquote. And so... Here, here, I say to Dale Chu of Thomas B. Fordham and, of course, uh, Mr. Pondicio, who are making that point. Here, here. I, I just I want to one comment on your commentary of the week because I couldn't agree more. And I think that I think that, you know, I love Dale Chu. I think he, I think he's great. But the other thing I want to point out is that every time we and of course, no form of education is neutral. We've talked about this plenty before. But every time we um, also allow uh, folks to frame any private school that a kid's going to attend as a school that's going to, you know, and, and, and some schools do, they can, they can choose what they want to teach, but as a school that's going to um, teach in a certain kind of way that we, that some might perceive um, is offensive. I think we're also doing a disservice to the private school sector at large, which is in and of itself, 
a very diverse sector. And that's the whole point, right? That schools should public, private, charter, everything in between, be able to take a distinctive approach to education. But let's not paint everybody with one broad brush just because they are one thing or the other. On to our tweet of the week from Justin Pearson. And, um, you know, we just spoke with the great um, Richard Comer. And this is people with the means to take for granted the ability to choose their child's school by paying tuition or moving to communities with quality schools. We are sympathetic to parents such as Ms. Espinoza who can't take such choice for granted. I mean, at the end of the day, that's what this case that we're all waiting for bated breath to hear the outcome of is all about. I, I, I think actually, if I could just be a little... Uh... Uh, salmon swimming upstream here. I'm not sure Espinoza will lead to some sort of big revolution in, no, maybe in, not. in private school choice. I happen to, you know, like you still got to get legislatures and states to pass uh, laws and many of them uh, won't, et cetera. But anyway, well, we'll see. Let's uh, hope for the best. And next week, we're going to have with us Susan Wise Bauer, who is a homeschooler, English instructor of writing and American literature at the College of William and Mary and author of the best-selling book, the Well-Trained Mind, A Guide to Classical Education at Home. I'm looking forward to that, Bob. Hopefully I can learn something about how to teach my own kids here at home, even after school. So uh, until next week when we will be on, what is it, episode 20 of The Learning Curve. 20, we're an adult. The Learning Curve podcast is eh, an adult. Almost. We still can't drink. <laughs> or rent a car. Our thanks to uh, Dick Comer and, of course, Kara Kendall. And I'm Bob Bowden. We'll see you next time. <laughs>